come to bear a report to you from the great north, the land of moose and pine trees. Um, I know. <laughs> Just as it was getting good, I had to come and interrupt the whole thing, right? Uh, I, you know, wives, mothers, sisters, daughters... I come to tell you that the Lord is doing a great thing amongst your men who have participated in the retreat this year, and um, it's been an incredible thing to witness. I was able to spend the first few days up there and then come back for this morning and stuff, and so um, it's it's really amazing to me that um, we have, you know, it's typical of us men, right? We're not doing a whole lot of feeling sharing. We're not doing a whole lot of conversation everything i'm telling you if you could like get a drone and a camera up there your husband's brother's sons a bunch of chatty kathy's it's unbelievable i mean they're like oh and then and they're like they're sharing a feeling or two it's amazing it's not one of those retreats guys if you've been on the fence over the years i know not everyone can make it and things but if you're on the fence, you know, year after year, it's not one of those things. It's very laid back. It's very, you participate in what you want to and what you don't want to. We find that most guys go up there to uh, make a few friends and to hear a good story or to share their story. And um, it's pretty Im- uh, impactful and pretty powerful. And so um, the, the men have been really challenged uh, directly from our own Tim Corbett. And uh, Tim did an amazing job holding up an example of his own father um, and the inspiration that he's um, had over the years. And it's one thing I've always loved about Tim. If you spend more than five minutes with him, he's going to quote something his dad taught him. And so you've got 80 or so men up in this retreat in Jackman who are being inspired to either be that kind of dad, remember that kind of dad, understand that that's who the Lord is for them if their dad wasn't that way. And just a really impactful, transformational time. And this morning, um, Pastor Blaine from Soul and Free Church from New Hope uh, is going to be delivering the message for them at their time of worship. And then when he's done, one of the most powerful events of the weekend is going to take place. And in that circle, this circle that's going to form, they're going to be in chairs in a big circle in this big open just beautiful room that echoes all the acoustics as we're worshiping and all this stuff and and they're going to one at a time as led as as desired not everyone's put on the spot share their kind of aha moment this thing that occurred to them this weekend or what they got out of the weekend and i have seen some of the most um incredible um testimonies i have seen men um, hear the thing that they've been needing to hear for years and someone else stood up and, and shared something and it's just, it's an incredible thing to witness. And, uh, and, and so I'm a little sad that I'm missing it this year, but trusting it's going to be, uh, incredible. And so be praying for them, but I, I came to give you a tip. Not just to give you an update, a tip. If you are going to be receiving one of these men back into your home this afternoon, let me caution you, go easy. They're not used to this whole, I found a feeling and shared it. And so what's going to happen is they're going to come home from this weekend and you're going to be like, tell me everything. How'd it go? They're going to be like, good. That's it. That's all you're going to get for a little while because they're still processing. They're still thinking about, and you're going to hear it leak out a little bit over and over. Oh, and this this dude said this and oh, we had this and everything. So just kind of stay available. Oh yeah. Tell me more. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's different when my wife comes home from the events with the ladies and things like that. 
it's just different. Let's just put it that way. Let's just say I'm not getting a lot of sleep that night. It's going to be like, and then this, and then this, and then it's all good. We're just different people, right? So I'm telling you transformation is happening. I'm telling you that realization is sinking in and that all of this is taking place. And so if they're not able to express it well, give it time, pray about it, encourage more from it, but don't be discouraged. It it is impacting them more than they will let on. Um, That's just the nature of things. And so to see we had 25 new guys or first timers go to this retreat, I am... um, (laughs) Something is happening in the lives of our men in this church. And it's incredible to witness. I get to go up. I'm spoiled up there because I don't have to do a thing. I just sit in Adirondack chairs. I change my position around the campground. I get to know guys and I hear their story and just meeting new people all the time. And I'm seeing this leadership take place under Jeff Dion and Steve uh, Dameron and so many others on that team. And I'm sorry, I'm a guy, so I'm just going to promote this ministry. And then I was so excited for Laura to share what's coming up for the ladies. And I'm just telling you, you know, you've got to enter in and you've got to take advantage of all of the, the truth that's being shared and, and the relationships that are being formed. It will change your life. You're not getting it out there. It's just not going to be available for you out there. So pursue it. Uh, I saw, you know, it's especially for men, it's not easy for them to go out of their relational comfort zones. Um, and, and so for them to be there and to take a chance, be the new guy on the block kind of thing is really powerful. Well, what we're here for this morning is to um, elevate and, and lift up the word of God. Let me just say before I do, some of my dearest friends surprised us this morning, Dick and Lori Perry, mine and my wife's favorite people in Florida, almost other than my mom. My mom's watching. Mom, you're my favorite. I was close. Coming into a close second are the Perrys, and so welcome. Thank you for bringing Florida with you this morning. He was reminding me, it's been 10 years since they've been, I'd say, a part of our church, but you've never really left as far as we're concerned. But anyway, I continue. We are here this morning to um, study the Word of God. For the last month and a half, we've been thrown off schedule just a little bit, but all with God's intention and all on purpose from our study in the book of Ephesians. If you're new to this idea of church going and Christianity and studying your Bible, I mean, don't be intimidated by that. Don't feel like an outsider because that isn't the intent. We are all growing at different places and paces in our relationship with God. And so I say that to say that when I say there's a book of the Bible, you might say, isn't the Bible itself a book? Yes, it is. But within it are these 66 different books written by different authors all across thousands of years. And we firmly believe that God orchestrated that, that his spirit moved in those different individuals over those different periods of time to pen the words that he intended for us to still um, study and adhere to and guide our lives by thousands of years later. We believe that this book is living. We believe that it is, um, it is current and it is applicable to all that we experience in life. As, as Libby prayed earlier, all the things that are going on in our world, they're going on in our hearts, they're going on in our heads, all of these things the scriptures speak to. And so I say that because part of your experience might be that you feel like, well, my world out there is separate from my religion. My religion is private. 
And so I come here to kind of get away from that all. What we intend to do is equip you to blend those things together, not to be persuaded by the world, but so that the gospel and the message of the Bible can impact the world that you live in. So we're always looking to help us apply the scriptures. And I I come at it from a bit of an assumption or an understanding. I think in 2022, it's rare for people to say, you know what? I'm motivated and compelled to be in church this morning. So I make an assumption. If I see you here, for the most part, you're here because you're saying, I really want the Lord to show me something. I really want him to guide my steps. I'm really hanging on maybe by a thread or I'm actually walking in a lot of joy and hope. And so I'm asking him to invade my space. I'm asking him to, to light my path and give me instruction. And so in those moments, God comes in like this with this precise tool, this little scalpel to kind of carve out the pieces that are infecting our lives, the things that are holding us back, the things that are that are, are plaguing our spirit. And he says, okay, this is how we're going to do this. We're going to move this out. We're going to heal this part. And sometimes we find ourselves, maybe you're in this camp, you find yourself coming into a situation like this, a little bit being dragged into it, or you're a little unsure. And sometimes God takes the scripture and kind of pulls the pin and throws their grenade and says, it's going to hurt for a second. And kaboom, you hear truth and you see life and you're, it's so foreign to what you've been living by and what you would expect to hear. And so understand that you could be here uh, from two or three or four different perspectives, but knowing that the scripture itself has such a wide range and the spirit is personal. And the Holy Spirit this morning, as my words are from God's word and the words that are not, hopefully he'll block from your ears. As, as, as my words come from his word, it will rest in your heart. It may explode like a grenade or it may carve just a little bit like a scalpel. And so I pray that you will receive it in the, in the place that you are living this morning, knowing that God knows way more than I would ever know about your life. So with that in mind, I want to start in a little bit of a strange place. I want us to visit a philosophy uh, I want us to visit a um, a thing that is um, informed so much of the psychotherapy and the 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 mode of the day in which that we um, we've heard about. And so you may have never spent any time on a therapist's couch. You may have never read a book by Carl Rogers or Skinner or any of these other foundational psychotherapists who had a philosophy and and it was based on a certain thing and it helped explain a worldview and and how you either if you don't need God or you do need God, is he real or isn't he? What can we get away with? What are the things that we should be allowed to do? How does our um, self-image hurt us? All that sort of stuff. You may say, I've never studied any of those things, but I promise you, you know their philosophies. I'm going to share um, uh, some of what Carl Rogers uh, instituted some many years ago. And you tell me if this sounds like what we're walking in today. Carl Rogers is a, a famous, one of the foundational psychotherapists um, whose, whose model for uh, improving the person. I'm going to say all of this in quotes right now because I am going to challenge it. Uh, the, all, his model for improving the person is something that we hear all the time now. Very influential. Because Rogers believed that all people possess an inherent need to grow and achieve their potential. We've heard that word potential a lot when we've talked about how we approach things, right? This need to achieve, he would call self-actualization, he believed was one of the primary motives driving behavior. 
He believed that the formation of a healthy self-concept was an ongoing process shaped by a person's life experiences. People with a stable sense of self tend to have greater confidence and cope more effectively with life's challenges. I mean, does this not sound pretty normal so far? We might go, I don't hear the problem. What's going on with this? Rogers suggested that self-concept begins to develop during childhood and is heavily influenced by parenting. Parents who offer their children unconditional love and regard are more likely to foster a healthy self-concept. Children who feel that, feel that they have to earn their parents' love may end up with low self-esteem and feelings of unworthiness. Now we're starting to see why therapists always say, tell me about your childhood and spend a lot of time there and try to resurrect those memories and things and find out what you might have forgotten or what they would say you've repressed and things. So the emphasis on the model is it happened in your childhood, so let's figure out what happened there. He also suggests that people tend to have a concept of their ideal self. The problem is that our image of who we think we should be does not always match up with our perception of who we are today. When our self-image does not line up with our ideal self, we are in a state of incongruence. He believed that by receiving unconditional positive regard, it's a very important phrase, and pursuing self-actualization, however, people can come close to reaching a state of congruence. Like many other aspects of this theory, unconditional positive regard plays a critical role in the development of full functioning. Those who receive non-judgmental support and love can develop the self-esteem and confidence to be the best person they can be and live up to their full potential. According to Rogers, a fully functional person has some of the following characteristics, a flexible self-concept, openness to experience, the ability to live in harmony with others, and unconditional regard for the self. The reason why I said that the scriptures often come in with a scalpel is because sometimes we, we are close to knowing and doing the truth of God, but we have just enough of error, just enough of, of persuasion from worldly uh, sources and forces that it throws us off center and off track with what the Lord has designed for us and what he intends for us. There is a pervasiveness of humanism in all that we see today. As you are hearing those phrases, you could probably picture a million different commercials. If you're a podcast listener, this um, commercial keeps coming up for BetterHelp. That's kind of the new online therapy source and everything. And people are sharing this language all the time. And so it becomes a part of our culture. And we say, what's wrong with that? Isn't it better for people to have a better self-esteem? Isn't it better for society for people to say, I have an ideal self that I want to achieve, and so I'm going to get there? Isn't that healthier for us? And that question is now coming into the church. So it's important for us to hit pause and say, where does this come from? How is it informing us? And is it even scriptural? From a writing called Modern Psychotherapies, a Comprehensive Christian Appraisal. Please let me read one paragraph. I know this sounds very clinical this morning. We will move past this in just a moment. The response um, from Stanton Jones and Richard Butman says this. Basically, there's a glaring problem with person-centered therapy in terms of its view of humanity. Humans are not inherently motivated towards positive growth. You think about what gets you out of bed in the morning. 
Is it the, is it the expectation that others have put on us? We should be better. Or is it really like, I'm going to be better today. There's a problem with us inherently. Humans are not inherently motivated toward positive growth. We were created in God's image. We do have eternity in our hearts, according to Ecclesiastes. We know there is something better. But Adam and Eve sinned. Introducing a sinful nature into the rest of humanity. And without God, our hearts are deceitful. We desire that which is evil. And we are dead in our sin. We've heard this already as we've come through Ephesians and we'll hear it again. We may desire to somehow be restored to our original purpose or to gain a sense of satisfaction and rightness in the way that we're living. We miss Eden, but we can't get back to it. It's not through our own effort or through a positive relationship with a counselor or I would add a philosophy that we will grow. It's only by the work of the Holy Spirit. Also, we need more than growth. We need salvation. Remember our statement from earlier Ephesians messages that we need a resurrection, not a resuscitation. We need sanctification. Our sinful nature needs to be overcome for us to be fully restored. By and large, when we hear the philosophies of mankind that say that we can achieve better and we can be better and we have an ideal image of who we're supposed to be, we have to doubt the source. How do I know what's best for me? How do I know what I'm supposed to be? Because the scripture says that Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve failed and sinned in the garden. And then the scripture says that by one person, sin entered the world. So I come into this life tainted towards selfishness. I come into this life tainted towards the things that I want to achieve. And yet one of the pinnacles or one of the pinnings of, of Rogerian theory is that we would get together in harmony. So let me just absurdly um, illustrate this. If for some reason I think I have the right to key scratch cars that look nicer than mine, because I'm, I'm offended by their shine and it's showy and everything, so I can just take my key out I'm becoming a better me in my own opinion because I have risen to the thing that I've set for myself and that somehow is supposed to lead towards living in harmony with other people. Like I said, absurd illustration, but that's really what's going on on much minor levels. Paul, the apostle, the writer for us of the book of Ephesians found for us in the New Testament, he knows that the best place for us to find real hope is not on the inside. We, we hear from Disney all the time. We hear from the songs sung on top 40 radio that the best answers that we can find are within ourselves, that we can achieve that which we can um, imagine. Paul says that's not the best place to look, but it's in the cross of Jesus Christ because the only thing that we'll find as we look inward is not emptiness, not just emptiness, it's actual and literal death. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Isn't this exciting? Encouraging? We have a terrible self-image. We're all distorted. We're selfish people, and we're just dead inside. Be warm and filled. Offering boxes on the way out. (laughs) See you next week. This is what Ephesians 2 told us a couple of months ago when we started it off in verse 1. Again, 
this uplifting thing, but I promise you it is moving towards a hopeful conclusion. Paul says, you and I were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the wor- at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, this is how we were born, we were born children of wrath. I don't know exactly what that is, but that's not good. Children of wrath? I'm not going to wear that as a t-shirt necessarily. It sounds like a, a series with the, you know, the biker show and stuff like that where everyone's trying to burn everything down and stuff. And he says, that's like the rest of mankind. This is who we were. This was the innermost us. As we looked inside, that's what we saw dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once conducted our lives by. So Paul is moving his reader. He's moving those in this church to be, um, to eradicate any kind of boasting, any kind of hope or confidence that we would place in the self. And instead, replace it, push it out, move it out with exalted praise in God. The first thing I think our text is going to reveal for us today is that you and I are to depend on the work of Christ, not the work which you and I produce. Moving a little bit further into our text in Ephesians 2 verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's the hope. Here's why it's not going to be bleak and negative all morning, because he made us alive together with Christ by grace, by grace, by grace, we have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This has been our series so far in this book of Ephesians. You and I are living in when we're in Christ. We have vast treasure, a treasure that we'll see we did not earn. We did not find. We didn't follow the map and say X marks the spot and say, look how smart I am. I found the treasure by his grace. He led us to it and he paid for it and applied it to our lives. So therefore, our work, our efforts, our achievements, our self-actualization actually is something that is unboastable. I'm inventing words for us this morning. Please give me some leeway. Jen, please correct me on the other ones that I invent incorrectly later on. Our work is unboastable. Here's our text for this morning. I don't know if you are a Bible memorizer. I don't know if you've ever looked at scripture and say, I want, I really want to remember that someday. I want to remember where it is and everything. This is one of those passages that if you ever set out to memorize any scripture, this is one of those great passages talking about one of the greatest concepts, if not the greatest concept in all of the gospel, which is grace. We go to verse eight for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this, that's a very important word, that word this, we'll come back to it in a minute. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You and I know that the mantra of our time is to find the thing that you're good at or to expose the thing or to elevate the thing that you happen to succeed at and then tell others about it. 
you know, own it. Let the world know you've arrived, you're here, and you're a force to be reckoned with. Most of us aren't really comfortable with that. We see it on the commercials or we hear it on the talk shows or something or we see it kind of coming to us from the movies and things like that. And we're like, all right, well, maybe someday. I don't know. Not that comfortable talking about all my achievements or how great I think I am and stuff. But that is definitely the message that those who have arrived, those who are the most self-confident are the ones who are making it. Scripturally, we have a problem with this. The most important thing that could ever happen to anybody, which is the grace of Jesus Christ, which is a forgiveness of sins, which is clearing the record, removing the debt that we had against the holiness of God, and replacing that with all the merit of Jesus Christ, replacing that with the perfection of God's own Son. That most important thing comes to us in a way that we can't even say, look at me, I was smart enough, I found it, I figured it out, I achieved it. All of that is unboastable. Theologically, what we would understand is that we serve a God who doesn't share glory. It's a logic thing, if you think about it. If God truly is the highest, there's none above him, there's no other gods above him, the moment that he would ever elevate us to make us feel good about ourselves... He puts us in his position, therefore making him an idolater, a sinner. So because he's highest, some have accused God. Well, that seems awfully egotistical. If it's true and there's none higher than him, then he rightfully belongs in that place and can't elevate above his own glory. He doesn't share the spotlight with us. Not because he isn't giving, not because he isn't forgiving, but because he is the best. He is the greatest. He's the strongest. It's a logical thing. And yet the world continues to tell us, highlight your own accomplishments and let the world know that you've arrived and that you're a force to be reckoned with. I don't want you to show your hands, but I wonder how many in this, in this room have felt like some, a portion of their lives have been destroyed by the arrogance of other people. Those that felt like they ruled the world. Those who acted like towards you that they got it all figured out and that you need to kind of roll out the red carpet for them. We know those people, don't we? Perhaps we were those people. Perhaps we are currently that person and we're starting to go, ooh, maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree here. But the reality is, is we know really from experience how distasteful boasting is. And yet we see all of it being pushed on us saying, you need to do this. You need to embrace this. You need to be out there. And we go, yeah, but every time somebody acts like that around me, it pushes me away from them. So Paul is warning us. He says, if you're walking around like this grace that God has shown you is something somehow you discovered, somehow you've earned, you're not going to achieve the glory of God. You're not going to be elevating him. You're going to be pushing people away. And you're really undoing the concept of grace to begin with. Jesus illustrated this point when he was trying to show people the difference between pride and humility. He taught in parables and a parable isn't necessarily a thing that really happened. It's like an old story and it's supposed to have various principles. And so the details aren't always as important as the main thrust or the point. So in Luke 18, he tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were the righteous ones. And, he, and they treated others with contempt. They were looking down on them. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. At the time, it didn't get any lower than a tax collector. 
Picture a trader. Picture somebody who is selling out the secrets of your country or something like that. We would look at, at that as one of the worst things that you could do to your people. A tax collector is somebody who, as we saw when we were studying John, who was a, a Jewish citizen who was feeling pressure or saw great opportunity from the Roman occupiers. They said, you go to your own people and collect the taxes from us and we'll make sure you're pretty comfortable. So they sell out their heritage and their people to work for their oppressors because they're getting a lot of coin on the side. So completely despised by their own society. It was so obvious that they were doing this for riches. So Jesus is using one of them as an example. He said two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Verse 11. The Pharisee, the one who knows all the scripture, the one who's been a good church-going boy and everything and knows all the rules, he tries to live by them, all these things, standing by himself, this is how he prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You know, those extortioners or the unjust people or those slimeball adulterers or, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You can imagine how fun that was here to hear this guy's prayer. But the tax collector, standing afar off, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified in right standing before God because of his repentance is what he's saying, rather than the one who was the perfect one, the one who was doing everything right, the one who had a squeaky clean track record. Why? Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Our work is unboastable. Why is our work unboastable? Because our work is unmeritable. Again, I feel like I'm inventing words. I haven't heard these before. The scripture tells us that the best things that you and I bring to God, the very finest efforts that you and I can bring, the, the, the most um, sweat and tear inducing work that we give ourselves to in comparison to the perfection of a holy God is like filthy rags. There isn't anything that what we bring to the table truly earns apart from what he allows it to count for in his grace. Those of you that are students of the scriptures or you're paying attention closely when we're reading through Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10, you heard something that would sound like something we do, something that we bring to the table. It says, for by, gra for by grace you have been saved through faith. You say, okay, so that's something I can do. I mean, we named our church after it, right? Sounds like an effort. It sounds like a work, but really it isn't for two reasons. Paul has already established for us in the text that a dead man can't produce anything. And, and so there's a faith that is required. It's like the vehicle that gets us to God's grace. And he says, it is through faith that you have been saved. But we have a problem going, well, I don't, if I'm dead, how would I even know to believe? Secondly, it's textually inaccurate, inaccurate. As we look a little bit closer, remember I said there was a very key word and it was the word this. We go back to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is this? Is it the grace? 
Is it being saved? Is that the thing that's not of our own doing? Without getting into the specifics of the syntax of the sentence in the Greek, the point is, is that there is a mismatch here if we try to make it that grace is the gift, but faith is our effort. If I can do the thing that earns me salvation by believing because I'm smart enough and I figured it out and I was wise enough and these other idiots didn't know well enough to follow God. But the, the sentence doesn't allow me to go there. This matches all the elements of the phrase before it. Grace is not of our own doing. Saved is not of our own doing. And even faith is not of our own doing. Many months ago, we talked about the mysteries of the scripture, that it holds us in tension because we want clear definitions. We want black and white. I want to know where my faith ends and God's grace begins. I want to know the things that I'm working towards count for him and the other things are are not in my strength. They're in the strength of Christ. And the answer to all those is yes. It's somewhere with all of that, all mixed in. And so many people over the decades and centuries have have tried to pinpoint this and say this is where that ends and that's where that stops. But basically what we're called to do is to surrender that and say as much credit as I give back to Jesus, as much glory and praise and worship as I give back to God and remove myself from any boasting, I'm in good standing with God. I can tell you that when I accepted Christ, it felt like a thing I was doing. It felt like a faith I was exercising. It, it was a moment that made sense to me. It was a moment of mixing in all my, my fear of a real place called hell, but then this gift of grace that I didn't deserve, and I had sins that I knew God wouldn't be pleased with and all those kinds of things. And, and I felt a little bit of kind of, well, my family's doing this too, so I don't want to be left out. All of that was in the mix. All I can tell you is looking back on that moment, the Lord rescued me, saved me, took me from a dead corpse on the inside to a living uh, worship, worshiping child of his. But Paul is saying that this is not of my, my own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. True faith is belief plus trust. It's all in the mix. Let me see if I can illustrate a little bit from author and pastor Hughes who tells this story, and I think he just gives all the right details, so I didn't want to miss anything. Let me please read from his book here real quick. He says that a story comes from the last century that makes this point clear. During the 1900s, Jean-Francois Gouavelet, I'm trying my French out a little bit, better known by his stage name Blondine, let's stick with Blondine, was a world-famous acrobat. Born in France in 1824, Blondine became well-known while still a child. As he grew older, his skill and showmanship brought him fame throughout Europe and America. Once in London, he played the violin on a tightrope 170 feet off the ground. No, thank you. And then did a somersault wearing stilts. His most spectacular feats were the crossings of Niagara Falls on a tightrope 1,100 feet long and 160 feet above the water. On one occasion, he took a stove onto the tightrope and cooked an omelet before the Roaring Falls. I got questions. Bon appetit. On another occasion, he pushed a wheelbarrow across while blindfolded. On still another, he stood on his head on the precarious wire. 
That is why today in London, there are Niagara and Blondine Avenues. Once, in an unusual demonstration of skill, Blondine carried a man across Niagara Falls on his back. After putting his rider down, he turned to the large crowd and asked a man close by, Do you believe I could do that with you? Uh, Of course, the man answered. I just saw you do it. Well, then hop on. I'll carry you across. No, no sweat. Not on your life. <laughs> there is no real faith without trust, right? You know, we are so often prone to appreciate the strength and the gifts and everything that God provides. And we marvel at it from a distance, but there's a distinction between us just applauding it, being amazed by it. We could even be caught up in a worship atmosphere and tears might come down our faith face. But then he says, are you willing to get on my back so I can carry you across? And we're like, not yet. I'm not all in yet. I haven't put my faith. I haven't put my trust in your abilities. This is the difference between a faith that is given to us of God and the one that we try to generate ourselves, the one that we try to gin up and say, I can believe, I can do this. I, I, I know I could, I could get on his back. I know I could climb in that wheelbarrow and have him walk across. Some of the guys here have been jumping out of perfectly good airplanes for some dumb reason. And uh, a couple weeks ago, about 10 of them went out on a paratrooping expedition and they've done it a number of times most of them and and all this stuff and they keep of course saying to me so when are we going to get you out there it's like you wouldn't even get me on the plane knowing that the end result is me jumping out of that thing i would be gripping the tarmac you'd be dragging me and everything you'd have to give me a lot of sedative and then throw me out at some point i'd probably enjoy it once i was flying down there but still you see, I already know that I would stop short of putting any action in motion that would show that I'm going to participate. And we're good at that. We stop just shy of committing our lives to the Lord, don't we? Of trusting in his work, trusting in his strength. Paul gives us this indication in Philippians 1. He says that it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He said it's been granted to you that you should believe in him. Our ability to boast about coming to the Lord, figuring it all out, being more religious, cleaner, more pious than the other person, it's been gloriously removed from us at every turn. If we study the scriptures, we see it's him, it's him, it's him, it's not me. So that might cause us instead to depend on God's grace rather than just applaud it from a distance, rather than just appreciate it, that I might actually enter into it, that I might put my trust in him. I might climb on his back and say, I've seen you do it before. Why would I doubt that you can do it with me? This takes us back to verse 10. For we are here for a purpose. We hear people say this all the time as they're telling people, you need to give your life to the Lord. We often say to them, because he has a plan for your life. Some of these kinds of verses help us understand that. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for a purpose which God prepared beforehand, before you and I even knew him, before you and I even knew we needed him. He was preparing us, he was preparing the good works for us well in advance that we should walk in them, that we should actually do them. Not just say, maybe one day, maybe somehow but I would actually engage in the process. Here's a couple of things, just 
a couple of quick points that we need to know about God's grace. God's grace defies human demerit. In a lot of these conversations with men this weekend, one thing that I think that our, our leadership team does a brilliant job of is they always ask whoever's showing up and registering to reach into a bag and just randomly pull a chip out. And now they got fancy this year. They put it on wood blocks and they burn the names in because they're dudes, right? And so uh, you get somebody else's name and your assignment is before the weekend is up, you're going to find that person. You say, let's sit down. I need to hear your story and I'm going to share with you mine. You know, and it might be a 15-minute conversation. It might be a two-hour conversation. There's all those kinds of variations. And in every conversation I have with men, whether it's they're on my tag or not, or we just happen to randomly catch up, and I know that many others would say this, I see this intense desire to be known, but also an intense desire to be accepted despite all the ugliness that they bring to the table. That there's a hesitation to say, And this isn't the point of the conversation. Tell me all the wicked things you've done. We don't revel in the gory details and we don't, you know, it's not trying to one up each other. Oh yeah, well I did worse and I did that and everything. It's not that environment. But there's a moment where somebody feels the need. I, I just got to have you know who I am. And then there's this response that says, and if that's not good enough for your church, please let me know now before I get too engrossed in this thing. And if they're acting like that with me or with some of the other elders or the leaders or something in the church, do we not act that much more like that towards God? Lord, you sure you want me? This is, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I've experienced. And you're saying that grace is available to me. You're saying that, that this new life, this resurrection is available to me. Don't you want to think about that before you accept this deal? God's grace defies all the demerits that we bring to the table. I don't know if you know what a demerit is. It doesn't sound good, does it? When I was in Christian high school, I racked up all kinds of demerits. There was a little slip of paper that said, Brent was talking in class again. He was trying to be the class clown again, blah, blah, blah. And I knew just where to stop before it turned into some real trouble. Some detentions here and there and stuff like that because it was like on a scoring system. But before it got bad, I knew how to lock it down. And grace says, I know how many demerits you're holding. I know that your hands can't hold all the slips of paper that you've been given through the semester. But I forgive you anyway. Pascal said, grace is indeed required to turn a man into a saint. And he who doubts this doesn't know what either a man or a saint is. One time a man was getting ready for a very important photograph. And it was back in the day where you had to really situate the lighting. You had to find your position. It took time to set it all up. And so he had a minute to kind of explain to the photographer what he was going for. I mean, this photo counted and stuff. And so he says, I, I want this photo to do me justice. And the photographer took him second and kind of gulped a little bit and said, now listen, sir, I've been observing you for a while now as you've been getting ready. And you really want this photo to bring you mercy. Okay, that didn't land. Let me try that again. This guy said, I want this photo to do me justice. And he said, no, you want this photo to bring you mercy. In other words, he wasn't very photogenic. Didn't look good. Anyway. Ah, now we get it. You would think, you would think some of you are the ones that came in at 1.30 in the morning. But here's the, here's the point that we're making this morning. This is why we can't just appreciate grace from a distance, from afar. 
Grace is the totally unrelenting, unearnable favor from a holy God who doesn't owe us anything. Lord, I, I want the photo. I want the picture that you're taking of me. I want the image that you have of me to do me justice. He said, if I gave you that, you would have hell. Justice for you is punishment for the sin that you were born in. Instead, I show you mercy. I bring my grace as a, as a gift that you could never earn. And so you'd never be able to brag about it apart bragging in the glory of God that he was one that found you and rescued you mercifully. We don't depend on grace until we recognize our fundamental alienation from it in our flesh. That's why we had to take time at the beginning of this message to look at all the ugly parts. It helped us see the glory. It's helped us see the hope that awaits us. And the error of human philosophy is we keep thinking something good is in there, something that we can depend on, something that we can just actually finally achieve will be let down at every turn. The point from Paul, though, is not to dwell on some kind of self-hate that as Christians, we're like, I'm just an idiot. I'm dumb. No, the point from Paul is not to dwell on ourselves at all. A fixation or what we would say today is an obsession or adoration for God's grace replaces an empty self-obsession. We're hand in hand with, uh, or hand in hand with being a Christian is really to walk humbly. Once we understand that all of our grace, all of the things that are in our life that have produced life in us were in our own favor or our own earning, we can't help but to be humbled. And we can't represent Christ well until we depend on and reflect the grace that we have been shown. If you want your communication issues to improve, if you want the tensions in relationships around you to improve, obsess about the grace that God has shown you. And you can't help but exercise that same grace when somebody torques you off as well. When they're getting in your way and they're acting like, hey, I deserve the red carpet rolled out and everything. You're going to be, oh, I was there too. I was that person. And I was doing it in God's face when he decided to show up and save me anyway. Why can't I show this person that same grace? This is the calling of this Ephesians passage. And that's why I encourage you to learn it, to memorize it, and to hide it in your heart. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer before we, before we sing. Lord God. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us before your throne today. Thank you, Lord, for leading us in the beautiful uh, songs of worship that, is, that, is, that have encouraged the church for centuries. Lord, that we can wrap our hearts around a truth that is more stable than the changing culture that we live in and all the ways that it lets us down and freaks us out. Lord, you are here to show us your stability. You're here to show us your steady hand. So as we learn to trust in it and learn to trust you because of it, Lord, may we, may we bask in your grace. May we enjoy it. May we ponder it. May we worship before it. Knowing it wasn't anything that we earned or did or it wasn't because we were smart enough or that we were going to bring something to the table that you could use more than somebody else. For whatever reason, you decided to show mercy to your creation even after we walked away from you. We thank you, Lord, for that. We bless your name today and only your name as the only God and Savior, one who's given us life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.